Welcome to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. We are back from a long hiatus that took us through the summer and early fall, and we have a number of new episodes coming soon, starting with today's. Episode 48 features Matthew Dolan, executive chef and partner at 25 Lusk, an expansive, upscale restaurant lounge in San Francisco's Soma neighborhood. The brick warehouse building, built in 1917, was once a meatpacking facility and serves as a reminder to the grittier and more industrial history of this part of the city. Today, Dolan and his partner, Chad Borden, have established a thriving business that reflects a more modern San Francisco. 25 Lusk is a city-certified green business, which means the restaurant follows strict composting guidelines, uses non-toxic soaps and products, and has even done away with plastic straws. Taking this environmental mindfulness a step further, Dolan has become committed to a sustainable seafood program and has even published a new cookbook called Simply Fish, dedicated to enabling home cooks to eat more fish of the sustainable variety. Dolan is high energy and passionate about these causes. There are different styles of farm-raised salmon. Some of them are fine. Some of them aren't so fine. So it's like when you start learning about this stuff, you really have to decide what do you want to support. To me, it's again, it comes back to this notion of sustainability that we need to know where our fish is coming from and how it's caught and how it's treated. Let's have a listen. We are here at 25 Lusk with executive chef partner Matthew Dolan. Thanks for joining us today and having us come over. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure and really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. And we especially appreciate the air conditioning during this SF heat wave that we're (laughs) having. Not very fun. So in your own words, can you describe what 25 Lusk is? Absolutely. It's a two-level restaurant. So we have a lounge in the lower level and an approachable fine dining restaurant on the main level. And in the beginning, it was the lounge that was packed and there was a line around the corner and, you know, the businessman inside of you says, okay, that's a good thing. But then when you go and look at it and you're just like, this isn't a restaurant. And now it's more a restaurant. We do a lot of private events. We're also a certified green business, so we actually care about where our products come from. Uh, We don't just say it, we live it, and that's from chemicals to recently we just got rid of straws, and we switched to paper straws just because that makes a lot more sense. It's kind of this giant brick and timber warehouse that used to be a meatpacking facility back in 1917, and the building has lived and is about to celebrate its 100th birthday this year. And we're about to turn seven. So as the restaurant climate in San Francisco has changed, so has 25 Lusk. And I know a lot of people like to say their restaurant is farm to table or they source organic whenever possible. That's true, too. But we make a point to know everybody that we're buying our stuff from. As far as the team goes, my business partner, Chad Borden, and I have been the greatest of friends for 20 years. We went to culinary school together. He's the godfather to one of my two children. And... Our families hang out. I mean, it's it's um, one of our investors is also my cousin, and his primary business partner is his best friend in the world. And it's sort of like, it's it's people that care about one another, um, and we extend that to our staff. So we really our mission here is also to make sure that the team really wants to come to work, because if you have that sort of dynamic, you can do anything and adjust to the time. So that's a really long answer. Um, I probably could have just said it's a restaurant and a lounge, and then we would have moved on to the next. um, We're down with the interview, actually, now. That's it, huh? We're good. Great. Um, (laughs) And I talk too much. If you give me a microphone, it's dangerous. (laughs) At least it's not in the evening. I'd have a few beers, and we'd we'd be singing karaoke. Well, 
we'll have to reschedule. We'll reschedule that. Great, Um, great. (laughs) No, that's great. And I appreciate your sharing the background of the building too because we always find it really interesting to hear about the history of the places too and I find that also especially interesting because you have a deeper connection to fish and you're sort of coming out of this former beef industry (laughs) location and sort of transitioning it into healthier food essentially. Mm -hmm. You spoke about being a certified green business. What does that mean exactly? It's actually the city government has this office, this green business office. And so you get passed from the health department to the public utilities commission. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a guide along the way and it's about a 20 page document where you kind of have to meet a series of requirements consisting of are your lights LED? Um, Do you have regulators in your faucets? Or are you just letting too much water pour out of them? What is your waste management strategy? And then as far as the chemicals are concerned, that's a big one. So all of our soaps and, and detergents are biodegradable. Companies like Cisco and US Foods and Byright Food Service all carry, usually all of them carry two lines. They have the the toxic and the non-toxic. And the non-toxic is usually about four times more expensive. Mm-hmm. But when you have kids and a conscience, you should spend the money on the biodegradable stuff because you are making an impact and you want to leave the world so your kids can inhabit it, I guess. That's the idea. So so the green business folks, they come in and then they, they themselves kind of keep track of everything. And then you get audited by the PUC and by uh, Recology and, and Department of Public Health. And all these people, all these different uh, divisions come in. Then the green business folks come back out and just make sure that everything is as it looks. There's one final review. And that's it. Then they send you a little plaque. You get to go to parties. <laughs> what else? But in the end, it's worth it because we had, I had a chance to network with a lot of other businesses that are of the same sort of philosophy. And, and for us, it's, it gives our servers and our front of the house folks an opportunity to tell a story. What does it mean? It's on the menu. And people say, well, I understand you're a green business. What does that exactly mean? And we, we can say it's, it's something we believe in and it's something we just actually went through the process to see if we were missing anything to be mm. quite honest interesting and we were yeah. and we were I, the, the, I never thought about regulators on sinks before uh. it's a pain in the neck when you're trying to wash your hands but you're also saving water and <clears throat> and when you live in california you should try to save as much water as you can so you mentioned that once you had children it sort of made you start thinking a little bit differently about sustainability and toxicity and all of those things was that the turning point for you or how did that change your actually living in finland of all places was the turning point for me because it's such a small country but it's it's such a well-organized country and they waste very little they're stewards of the land they hunt and they hunt to eat the animals they fish and eat their animals and there's more of a connection to the food system and the damage that we can do as restaurants. One thing that if you think about in this country, one of the biggest tragedies is food waste. I mean, because Americans waste 40% of their food, which is enough food to feed the planet three times over. And we do that because we go to these mega stores and buy 40 pounds of pork chops because it's a great deal. And a lot of that ends up in the garbage. So in countries like Finland, they buy what they need. They go to the market daily, which I wish we did more of here. So, yeah, Finland was really a turning point because I realized that I also had kind of a more of a typical American mentality of, you know, I I guess I wasn't really looking at my own impact. For me in the restaurant business, it was more of like get through the day and keep your food costs low and that kind of stuff. And then when I was married, my wife is an environmentalist and she's also originally from France. And you think about countries like France that have laws restricting food waste and Mm -hmm. requiring that, you know, for example, there's a grocery store chain here in the States that I won't mention their name, but 
They have an aesthetic clause, so if cherry tomatoes aren't perfectly spherical, they throw them away. They don't wow. go to a homeless shelter, they don't go to a school, they don't go to a retirement community, they go in the garbage. And to me, that's just crazy. You know, that's illegal in France. So anyway, so she has this mentality. We get together, and I definitely changed a lot of my ways because I learned quite a bit through her. And then when our first little boy was born, things like BPA-free plastics, something I wouldn't have considered before, but now I realize why that's so important. Mm -hmm. Like, as a, as a parent, like, the fire retardant blankets and how you think, well, that makes a lot of sense, but they're really bad for the baby. You know what I mean? So when you start looking at that stuff, then you kind of translate that over to the restaurant business and you're just like, bleach. Soap and water is really good and there's natural sanitizers out there and they're very expensive, but it's worth it. And they're non, they're non-caustic and they're non-toxic. So, you know, it was definitely going to Finland and then meeting my wife and yes, then having a kid and being like, okay, I, I need to change my ways. And there's even stuff that I can do better. I mean, one thing that dawned on me the other day was this straw thing. And my wife had mentioned it and we did, we had a look and, you know, there's a number and I'm a, lately becoming a really boring person. So I, <laughs> I find statistics to be kind of interesting and I'm like, how many straws do we use on a daily basis as a country? Somebody asked me this question and I was like, I have no idea. And the number is 500 million. Wow. And I said, excuse me, you're telling me that in the US we use 500 million plastic straws a day. Like, yep, that's enough to circle the globe three times. Most of them end up either in landfills or in the ocean, thus poisoning our seas and different species. So by switching to paper straws, those end up in the compost. Mm -hmm. And then ideally they don't have that negative impact and it's an easy move people can make. I mean, yeah, they are more expensive than the plastic ones, but if you think about the whole story and the impact, it makes a difference. And hopefully when more people want to buy them, maybe they will become cheaper. Exactly. It's like the plastic bag law, yeah. you know, in San Francisco. Nobody thought that would ever pass and then it did. Yeah. So I think that the plastic straw law should be next, mm -hmm. you know. So you've mentioned Finland a few times. What brought you there? What were you, what were you doing there? And how was, did that happen? Okay. <clears throat> Before Finland, I was working on the island of Nantucket and I had met a guy from Finland and we got along pretty well. And so... We were working together, going out in the evenings after work, that kind of thing. Um, I was single, been living out of the same two bags uh, for about 10 years, and traveling and cooking, and then I figured, why not Finland, because I'm not, I didn't want to stay on Nantucket Island anymore. Beautiful restaurant, lovely, lovely place, but if you're single, there's only so much Nantucket you can handle. And you're from um, New York originally? Yeah, I'm from the New York City area originally, so, so it, that was close far. to friends and family. And yep. Well, I was thinking about the end of Nantucket, and I said, well, I'll go for the off-season, because maybe if I do want to come back. So the, because it's a seasonal sort of situation, we work 10 months, and then you have two months off. So I said, okay, I'll go for a couple of months. And I actually went for five months the first time, and it was great. I mean, it was such a different, such a different everything. The ingredients, the food, the people, the, the, the culture of dining. I found it really impressive. Like lived there for almost two years, but it was somewhere in the middle, I realized. It was like... If, if six Finns go to a restaurant, they'll all sit down, they'll all order the exact same thing. <laughs> Everybody. I don't know why. Nowadays, I think that's changing as the younger generations are, have a more international sort of focus. No, but back then, it was, that was kind of, that was very normal. And it was sort of just part of the culture. It's like, well, I'm going to have the cod. We'll all have the cod. That sounds great. <laughs> because it's not the way we do it here, where if six people go out to dinner, everyone's going to have something different and maybe discuss what they're having and try this and share this. It's mm -hmm. just, that's kind of weird to them. So... This whole like differing restaurant culture was really interesting and the products and the food and everything. So yeah, no, I, I tend to reference Finland quite a bit because I learned so much there. Also like different cooking techniques and just different stuff. So I left 
Finland after my little five-monther, and then they asked me to come back because they were opening a second restaurant in China. So the entire restaurant moved over to China Mm -hmm. and left me alone with their Helsinki spot. And so I looked at it as a challenge. It was my first chef to cuisine job. And again, single, 29 years old, will travel. (laughs) Someone offers you a plane ticket and apartment. You're like, that sounds great. I'll I'll be there. (laughs) Don't care what you're paying me. Just... So yeah, it was and it was great, and you know we still go back because I met my wife there. Although she's from France, we met there, and so that's kind of the starting place. So we we go back every once in a while. My brother-in-law still lives there, and he has two restaurants in Helsinki. So we get to go and kind of just hang out, see family, friends. So, so a restaurant family all around. Yeah, on both sides. Mm-hmm. So you're from New York originally. Can you speak to how food played a role in your childhood, if at all? Absolutely. At the age of I want to say eight or nine years old, I started helping my mother in the kitchen as a choice versus going to the park and playing with my brothers and sister and and she had a catering business for a short period of time and so i was i was allowed to contribute and help out i loved it i actually preferred it so the way that she was excited and we actually see these events you know go off was pretty interesting and then i have a big irish family so holidays we get together and it was definitely these big feasts and and just to see the transformation of a bunch of people kind of just arriving and the hugs and kisses to the food's on the table, we've had something to drink, and everyone's laughing and having the best time, and the impact that the dining experience can have was, to me, just fascinating. That was the hook. What kind of food was it? It wasn't the best food, that's for sure. It was, it was sort of this, you know, 1980s version of chicken cordon blues and romaine lettuce salads, which seemed like all the rage back then, and, and just simple American fare. Mm. Um. <laughs> The kind that you would have at like a, a wedding, most weddings. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got it. So what about that made you want to turn to the restaurant industry as a career? When did you realize that that's what you wanted to do? Well, I, I actually I turned 14 and I lied about my age and said I was 16 to get a job because I wanted to buy a bicycle. After lying about my age and getting a job as a dishwasher and a prep cook, I was I was done. I was sucked in. I was like, this is the energy of the kitchen. It was terror, and especially back then when you could still throw pans at people, it was te- it was terrifying, you know. And you had these salty old European chefs that were mean, and then they'd kind of switch to whatever their language was and talk to their buddies because they always had a, a someone from the same country there they could confide in. And it was yeah, but it, it was just mean and like they dress you up to look like you were a I don't know like a, an absolute clown in these little white <laughs> pants and white outfits and and you know I'll never forget the day it was I think it was like nineteen when I had my first pair of checked pants and I was like yes I made it you know and so there was that there was that sort of like rite of passage that I I saw as a challenge and I wanted to I wanted to make it happen so those are, like, those are the cooks pants right? yep. yeah yeah okay. cooks pants but when you're a when you're a comie or a a whipping, a whipping right. boy. They, they put you in. They, they used to put you in white pants with this little white skull cap, and you're like, God, I don't look sane in this. Yeah. You know, it's kind of you. Like if the arms are a little long. Yeah, they could tie like, them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just, just to protect you from yourself. Yeah. yeah exactly. See that being a little alarming. Yes. So okay, so fast forward. So you went to culinary school. After I did. This point? Went to the Culinary Institute of America. I gave proper university a, a try. I went to the University of Delaware for I don't know how long, but it wasn't long. Um, and I had a job cooking, and I basically just had a ton of fun and didn't do anything except have fun and cook. And I was like, oh yeah, classes. So that didn't last long. And then I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. 
and graduated there in 98 and then headed off to New Orleans after that. What were you doing in New Orleans? Um, this is a funny story. It was before he was famous, uh, Emeril Lagasse, TV, TV <laughs> chef Emeril, yes, yeah. the same guy, was recruiting. And I get a call on campus to come to a meeting for some guy named Emeril Lagasse. And I'm like, who is this guy? I don't. <laughs> this but he was 99? 90, this was actually 97. 97. They offered me a job on the spot. I'd never been to New Orleans. I loved making bad decisions. So I got in the car one day with my same two bags and roll of knives and drove to New Orleans and they had a hotel room for me for a couple of weeks and the cost of living in New Orleans back then it was nothing so I had this beautiful apartment in the French Quarter and then you know then you realize what New Orleans is and it's a pirate town and it's terrifying and people uh, people like to have a good time and I you know I was there for almost two years and I realized it was time to go when it was three o'clock in the morning and I'm like hey I have to be at work at nine I should go home and people were like oh come on I'm like jeez I have to get out of here. So it's a beautiful city and it's obviously been through its challenges. But again, you talk about the culinary scene and the cooking and the culture is so different. So for me, that was really the draw. I was like to go do something that I'd never done before and had never even experienced before and just to try on something new for size. And I did fall in love with some pieces of Southern cooking. Even on the menu here at 25 Less Now, we have grilled shrimp and grits and it's something that I definitely took away from that experience. So yeah. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and we'll be right back with executive chef Matthew Dolan of 25 Lusk. spent some time in New Orleans. After that, you at some point went to Finland and you grew up in the New York Atlantic area Mm -hmm. all around and London, which we'll probably won't have time to get into, unfortunately, on this (laughs) episode. It sounds like a story. So all these places are obviously near water. You recently came out with a cookbook about seafood. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. So you're cooking in all these places near water, but a lot of people do and they don't all necessarily gravitate towards seafood as a focus. So what about the seafood industry and, you know, that cuisine drew you to focus in on that so much? Well, it kind of, in a way, goes back to the notion of being a green business and making the right choices. And if you really dive into it, which I did only, I think, when around 2010, when we opened 25 Lusk, I started learning about some of these fisheries and their practices and how just because it's fresh fish doesn't really mean anything. It, the difference between wild caught fishes and farm raised fishes. Obviously, you want to support your local fishermen because that's just a more sustainable approach to life. But if you are sourcing, fish from outside of your locale to know exactly what's going on and how these species are being caught matters so much because it to me if i think about the atlantic cod i grew up eating that it no longer exists you think about how many sea turtles get killed in shrimp nets in the gulf of mexico think about some of the salmon fishermen in california that are challenged by the farm raised industry and there are different styles of farm raised salmon some of them are fine some of them aren't so fine so it's like when you start learning about this stuff you really you really have to decide how do you want to go forward you know like what what do you want to, what do you want to support and to me it's again it comes back to this notion of sustainability that we need to know our fish is coming from and how it's caught and how it's treated. There's some farm-raised salmon that are fed these fish pellets that are made out of chicken bones. And the last time I checked, salmon don't eat chicken in the wild. 
so I don't know why we would feed. I know, and especially if you're a pescatarian and you find that out, then it's like, anyway, that's another topic. And I could talk at length of this topic, and let's not get me too revved up because it's a, it is a, it is a hot one. When I met my literary agent, I met her a few years ago, and it was her idea. We should do a book. We should do something with you. She came in for dinner, seemed to have a really good time. Sustainable seafood, sustainable everything is a hot topic around here. So, you know, I started thinking more about people's diets and we were still in full swing of the worst drought we've seen in California. And it comes down to water and water consumption. So I thought if I could come up with a book that would do a couple of things, give people super easy recipes, delicious recipes to cook fish at home, that'd be great. And then I started thinking about the average consumer when they go to the store, why don't they cook fish at home, you know? And it's probably because they don't know what they're doing. And if they give it a shot, they overcook it. Then it's pizza night, you know? <laughs> so it's like, what, what, what do you and do? And the house smells like fish. And the house way. smells like fish. Yeah. And then you have fish guts. And how do you clean it? And this yeah. has scales. I don't know how to take them, how to remove them. So I figured that with each recipe, what I would do is put in a section of what to ask the fish guy, you know, and everybody these days has a Whole Foods somewhere nearby them. And all of Whole Foods seafood is Marine Stewardship Council certified good fish. So if you're looking for sustainable seafood, you can go to Whole Foods and you're doing fine. And these guys behind the counter, they're going to hate you. But if you go in and say, I want four or five ounce salmon fillets, I want the pin bones removed. And can you make sure the skin doesn't have any scales and I want you to keep the skin on? They're going to go fine you know but they'll do it for you and what that means is you have four pan ready pieces of fish then you can take that and if you follow the recipe in the book the recipes kind of walk you through not only what to say but then once you have the fish they talk about you know drying patting dry the skin so the oil doesn't explode that doesn't stick and then turning your heat down so you get it nice and crispy and you don't burn it gives you time thresholds so but by the time you, if you follow the recipes you know you'll have a, a properly cooked sustainable piece of fish and then you don't have the smell as much you don't have the garbage you don't have the the, as much of the cleanup so i think that's also a big piece because i think nowadays i think people are two things i think they're lazy and they don't want to go nobody wants to like work in their law office all day long and go home and butcher a fish most likely they want something to be a little bit easier and the other thing is food insecurity plays a big role in this kind of just mentioned about not knowing what to do so then let's go get a steak and throw it on the grill and if i'm somewhere between medium rare and well done well deal with it you know everything's going to be fine so that that was sort of the inspiration behind the book is trying to see if i could come up with a, a useful tool to help people make the right decisions and also cook them well and cut the work in half. So how has that focus around sustainable seafood affected what you guys do at 25 Lost? Not much. I mean, it's brought a lot more attention from the fishing community and the sustainable seafood community. I mean, I've, I'm now in touch with people from Scripps Oceanographic Institute, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I, we're buddies. We've been doing some events together just to help raise awareness. So it's kind of created new alliances more than anything. I'm one of the ambassadors for the Ocean Recovery Alliance in Hong Kong. So they're having their Kin Hong Seafood Festival right now. So I'm working with them on trying to get more North American restaurants involved just to continue to raise awareness. But no, here we've always served sustainable seafood. We also serve pork and beef and chicken. And it's a mix of everything for everyone, but it's definitely put us in a position now where we can actually be more helpful to the sustainable seafood movement globally, actually. So it's been, it's been really interesting. So what can we do aside from following the instructions in the book and also not being scared to ask questions of the fish guys at the butcher shop? What else can we do and what should we avoid at home? Great question. I think one of the best things you can do is go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program's website and print out a pocket guide and stick it in your wallet. And that way, when you're deciding what you're going to make, 
it's all right there in front of you. It's updated every six months, and it's a really helpful guide. I think the Monterey Bay Aquarium, their Seafood Watch program is just spectacular, and the, and it's really helpful, and it does fit in the wallet. So it's kind of... And there's an... I forget. This is... I'm dating myself. There's also an app. There's a Seafood Watch app. You could download the app as well. Good Lord. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> that's mean. That's right. I'll send you a telex later about it. Hey, whatever works as long as you get the information, right? This is now embarrassing. Um. <laughs> and I think making it a way of life and maybe having just a little bit more fish than you normally do, it's also good for you. I think by increasing the, de- the demand on sustainable seafood and lessening our, our land animal dependency, that's a great step. So we didn't really talk about the origins of 25 Lusk. So so how did that come about and, and what was the inspiration behind it? How did you know it was time to start your own business? You know, I, I wasn't 100% sure or ready and I don't think anybody ever is. You know, I was, I was in my early 30s and I've been doing it for almost 20 years. And, you know, I was the chef of a restaurant in San Francisco for about a year and a half. And... For whatever reason, we we just didn't see eye to eye, myself and the owners. And so we were at a point where it was time to say goodbye. And then we were expecting our first child. So it was like, well, what do you do? Baby's on the way. Um, Do I start a business and then have to commit my life to new baby, new restaurant, which is not the smartest thing in the world to do. So that's what we did (laughs) instead. And um, my business partner was at Farallon. And he and I, once upon a time, said we would do something together, and we didn't know what it was. And then randomly, I get a call from one of our other partners who said that he was about to sell his company and was going to come in to help finance a new building, a new restaurant. And he loves the restaurant business, wanted to be part of it, and said, let's let's build a restaurant. And I said, that sounds amazing. And I was looking at work back in New York, and we had just traveled to meet my mother-in-law in France for the first time, which is a really nice thing. Hi, nice to meet you. Your daughter's pregnant. Um, I'm the father. We've been married for a while. It went surprisingly well. Also another podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was like, okay, we, you know, we've already left San Francisco. We moved and said, all right, let's come back. And so we did it. And then the economy did what it did. And we had three years to design and to finance. And we had busted a couple holes in the walls. So it's not like you can put it right back on the market. And the real estate market was dead anyway. So we basically just stayed the course and hung in there. And for me, career-wise, things had gone really well. I had won a Michelin star previous to that. Everything had been kind of like dreamlike, perfect. So inevitably, we open. The place is pretty. Good people coming together with the right intention. And then the Chronicle came and they hated us. And I received the worst review you could imagine. And, uh, and I remember the day I remember the day of reading about myself in the San Francisco Chronicle and cursing and freaking out. And then my second child was born. So it was like the, the weirdest December you can imagine. And I just came to work and I said to my gang, I said, look, here's the story. I said, I'm sure you read it. And if you believe it, then get out of here, go join the winning team. But if you don't believe it and you want to spend every day with me proving this guy wrong, well, then stick around and let's prove them wrong. And they did. And it was great. And a year later, we were voted top 20 best new restaurants in the country by Esquire magazine. And it's the mission here and sort of the overarching goal of 25 Velasquez is to just create beautiful guest experiences in a lovely environment. That's it. You know, we don't think we're the best in the world. We don't take pictures of ourselves and stuff like that. We just go to work every day to try to create these amazing guest experiences and lead our teams through a successful, not only service, but to make sure they feel like they have a worthwhile place to go to work where they can learn and grow and develop. We opened another restaurant in 2014 called Tap 415, which is burgers and beers. And that was a lot of fun too. And and we have some other stuff working. 25 Lisk was a great place to kind of 
redefine the career. You talk about like the next chapter of a book. This is this is for me. This is it. You know, and it's it's the ownership tier. It's learning how to do that well. You know, we've been in business for seven years. We've been around for ten. So, in this climate, that that's not the easiest right. to do. But it's been it's been great. I think every restaurant kind of tells its own story and. This one's a romance and a war story and a sad and happy all wrapped into one. So, And a shout out, you had the president of the United States, the good one. He did. Obama <laughs> came by here. He did. I thought you were talking one about time. Jimmy Carter. No, yeah, President Obama came to visit and it was crazy and it was amazing. And he was as much of a gentleman as you think he would be. He, these are the, the real standouts. First place, he, he came, when he came in the front door, he waved to all the people taking pictures of him on their iPhones. He went straight into the kitchen and said hello to everybody, dishwashers, cooks, yours truly. He and I chatted for about five minutes about just basic stuff. How you doing? Good. How was a flight? I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> um, and uh, then we talked about what he should eat. Turns out he likes raw fish, so he made some good choices. And then when he left the kitchen, he walked around the dining room and said hello to every single table and thanked them. Just thanked people. And then he went and sat down. A few Silicon Valley CEOs. He had a vodka and club soda, uh, two dishes, and he was out in 42 minutes. Wow. And on his way out, he was nice enough to let us take pictures with him so that people would actually believe the story. But it was... Talk about a guy of such incredible charisma and intelligence and character. He was, it was a pleasure to meet him. And he was... Uh, you could see it. He made an impact. I mean, the place... Everybody in the place. The guests, the staff. I mean, everybody's like... The hair on the, on the back of the neck was standing up. It was all tingles and butterflies. And, no, it was incredible. So yeah. he's, he's, welcome. he's welcome here anytime he'd like. <laughs> I'm not sure I can say the same about the current guy. Yeah, but yeah. Podcast number four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trump in your restaurant. <laughs> what to do when he asks for meatloaf. <laughs> um, <laughs> so thinking about what, you know, you've been able to do throughout your career, what's been the most challenging thing? And, and even about what you do now, what's the most challenging thing that you face every day? Being a good husband. Wow. Okay. It's true. Because I have, the restaurant itself has such a voracious appetite for people's time. And there's always something I can do here. There's always something that can be fixed. There's a phone call I need to make. There's emails I can catch up on. There's prep work that needs to be done, maintenance stuff. that It's amazing. And so balancing the time between spending any quality time with my wife and kids and then making sure I'm doing my job here is actually the, that's the most challenging. Because I, 28 years later in the kitchen, I, I, I know how to cook. And I can drive these guys through a service and I can prep and I can do all that stuff. And that's, you know, managing the finances can be tricky, but it's really wearing three hats. That's, that's, the, that's the hard part. You know, I don't think anyone has ever said that or talked about family too much anyway. It's always about the team and working with a team and very inwardly focused. So that is a neat perspective to see. And maybe that can influence some other chefs and restaurateurs out there to remember that there is a life outside. Yeah, but it's, and it's doable. It's doable. You just need to, you know, you, you don't get to sleep eight hours a day, that's for sure. Right. And you don't get to take two days off in a row. You know, you've got to kind of put your back into it and make decisions. I mean, I get up in the morning with my two sons. I make them breakfast. We hang out. I find out about yesterday. I drive them to school. I drop them off at their classrooms. 
So it's a good three hours a day that I spend with my kids. It's not a ton, but it, it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I do our best to go out and check out new restaurants, come home. She stays up where she probably would like to go to bed, but she stays up every night. So after work every night, we hang out for a couple hours and have a glass of wine and watch a movie or just talk. But, you know, it's you, you have to change your schedule. And I think you have to make sure that you're making time for everything. And sure, I used to I used to do lots of fun things. I used to ski a lot. I used to do all that stuff. And I don't I don't go skiing anymore as much as I'd like to. And that's that's the thing. But what's more important? Totally. What's the most rewarding thing about what you do? It's the daily. I mean, I think the the most rewarding thing about life is my family. Just the fact that they exist and they still talk to me. (laughs) But the most rewarding thing professionally is. See, I, I'm a firm believer that it's edible theater. You can't, I don't look back and say, look what I've done. You know, I've had people say, oh, what was it like to win a Michelin star? I'm like, I don't remember and I don't care because that was a long time ago and we're moving forward. And today matters and tomorrow matters, but yesterday doesn't really count anymore. So you have a new audience every day. You have a, a new set of expectations. And just because you've had six great services in a row doesn't mean that you can have a bad one and say that it's okay. So the most rewarding is when the manager of the dining room comes back and says, everybody's happy, 100%. You guys are nailing it. Everybody's happy, nothing to report, smiles all around. And you hear that and you're just like, wow, I just made about 200 people happy. That's pretty cool, you know? And yeah, we're not curing cancer or anything, but we are we're definitely making people happy and we're in a way you're you're healing the human condition for a moment you know like you're give, you're taking people away from their lives they get to forget and they get to come and hang out with you and just do something that they a might not be able to do themselves and even if they can let someone else do it for you but they get to turn off life for a second and just enjoy you know and if we're doing that well that's it so it hasn't happened yet you know what i mean like the answer to the question is that i the thing i'm most proud of has hasn't happened yet because it has to happen every day so today's a new day really That's great. And you may not be curing cancer, but at least we know that there's a lack of toxic chemicals that can cause it here. That's that's right. I think everybody smokes cigarettes, though. So I'm just (laughs) anyways. And we won't talk about how much butter you use. No, 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 no. (laughs) The 50 pounds of bacon downstairs. We can leave that out of the conversation, too. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and share your story. And congratulations again on the book. And thank the you. Success. And we look forward to learning more about sustainable seafood and what we can do to help with that. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You just heard the 48th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. There you'll also find the complete 25 Lusk episode with pictures and a behind the scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories. And on Twitter, we're at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes. The 25 Lusk episode was edited, produced, and photographed by yours truly. Special thanks to Patrick Wong, Menu Stories video producer and videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.